Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. Let's look to God's word together. Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Because besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated." Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. Then the, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of God. Can I show you something I think is kind of cool? Your pastor is kind of a nerd, and I, I was putting this together this week, because I think, I think this is pretty neat. So... 
you know, when the, when the Bible was originally written, it wasn't included with chapters and verse numbers, right? That was added much, much later for ease of reference, for, for you and I to use to make it possible to reference. So when the authors of the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to make their, their book easier to memorize, they would organize it in a certain way. And one of the ways they would organize their book is called a chiasm. You see that in your notes at the top there, a chiasm. And what a chiasm is, is basically an intersection. It's a, a symmetrical structure where parallel stories intersect at a middle story. It's sort of like circles that radiate out from a center point. So let's see this in the life of Abraham. Again, this is the sort of stuff that gets your very nerdy pastor excited to get up on a Sunday morning. Consider the story of Abraham. It began, you'll see this in your notes, with a genealogy. Then you get a word of promise at the beginning of Genesis 12. And then an episode where he lies about Sarah being his sister. And then in chapter 13 and 14, you get all of this info about Lot. Then you see in chapter 15, a covenant of promise. And after that, in chapter 16, you see the whole situation with Hagar. Then what do you see? Well, you see chapter 17, which like chapter 15, had a covenant of promise. Chapter 18 and 19 are just like chapters 13 and 14 because Lot is central. Chapter 20, which is our passage this morning, is parallel with chapter 12, verse 10 to 20, where Abraham lied about Sarah to Pharaoh. And then over the next few weeks, we'll see how the promises of chapter 12, of chapter 12 verse 1 to 3, are fulfilled in chapter 21 and 22. And like any good symmetry, the section closes with a genealogy at the end of chapter 22. So the life of Abraham is this chiasm radiating out from Genesis chapter 16. And so you may not see how absolutely incredible that is, but as I looked at this, I thought, man, this is how Moses and the Holy Spirit through Moses organized this book for the ease of our memorization so we could begin to know kind of the events and go, well, if, if there's a genealogy on this side of Abraham, there's got to be one on this other side of Abraham. And it also can answer the questions for us as to why in the world we have two similar accounts in both chapter 12 and chapter 20 of Abraham lying, doing this whole sister fib thing, right? Have you ever wondered that? Well, it was done at least partially because Moses liked the symmetry, right? He, he liked having it the same on both sides, and it was easier to memorize that way. But, but I think also we see that as similar as these accounts are, it also lets us notice what's unique, what's different between the, the situation with Pharaoh and then the situation with this guy named Abimelech. In fact, while chapter 12, verse 10 to 20 taught us about how God was faithful even when Abraham was faithless, here we get a slightly different emphasis. Genesis 20 approaches the issue of fear. And you could think of it, as the title says, as a same song with a different verse, or you could sort of ask the question, whom do I fear? And the central point for us here is that we are to fear God, not man. We're to fear God and not man. That's the central point that Moses wants us to see out of chapter 20. We so often talk in the church about the fear of the Lord, don't we? And the Bible talks about it 
regularly, but what exactly does it mean to fear God? What exactly does this mean? I think we, it's one of those churchy words we talk about, but we never really define for people often, do we? And so throughout church history, there's, there's been a several different ways that, that theologians and people throughout church history have talked about the fear of God. And one of the ways they talked about it was servile fear. You'll see that in your notes. And also fil- filial fear, fear of God. Or in other words, one will fear God as boss. The other fears God as dad. And so I want you to understand exactly what this means, even if you've maybe like me not grown up with a father in your life. Let's look and kind of think about this distinction. So first, there's servile fear, fearing God as boss. Fearing God as boss. God as boss is a relationship rooted in simply fleeing punishment, making it day by day, keeping the peace. It's that of an employee to an employer, Everyone has likely or will one day have a boss they are afraid of. I'm reminded my wife and I watched last night this movie called The Proposal. And if you've watched that movie, Sandra Bullock's character walks in a room and everybody tucks down and gets on their their computer. They don't even want to look at her because she could just fire them right on the spot. So many people view God that way. I know I worked in retail uh, when I was 16, 17 years old. I worked at Kohl's in Owensboro, and I had a boss who, she wore these heels every day, and she openly said she wore it because she wanted you to hear the steady thud of her heel and know that she was always watching and always nearby. So they hired me as a 16, 17-year-old guy to work in the home and kids department, which was the worst possible place to do this, and the first day they're having me fold baby clothes. Now, I, now, you know, that went about as well as you think it did, right? Folding these baby clothes. She came by, and instead of patiently helping me do it, she took one look at it, threw the clothes in the floor, and told me to do it again. <laughs> Needless to say, I learned, but there wasn't really a real change in me, was there? It was simply done out of fear of getting in trouble. I had another boss, fresh out of college. He was known to throw things. At us, this was my first sort of job right, right out of college, and he was only a year or so away from retirement, so he didn't care. And he told us as his staff, he wanted us to fear him. He wanted us to be scared of him, stay out of his way. This is the idea of servile fear, seeing God as boss. And Jesus told a parable to this same sense. He told a parable about three guys, all of which were given talents. And so when it talks about talents, it's talking about money, currency. One was given five talents, one given three, and another was given one talent. And the first two guys invested and multiplied their talents and and made money for their employer, but the other one simply buried their talent in the ground. And here's what we learn about this guy. Matthew chapter 25 tells us this. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. This is a guy that feared his boss. He says, you're a hard man. 
You're one who's, who, who comes down really hard and who's going to punish me for any tiny little mistake. And he says, you reaped or you didn't sow. You didn't earn or deserve any of this. So what does he do? He says, I'm not going to multiply it for you. I'm just going to bury it in the ground. This sort of servile fear, this seeing yourself at God is primarily this, this boss over you, this, this ogre who just wants to punish you, makes you simply avoid punishment and do the minimum rather than actually serving God and giving him the glory he's due. And yet we're told that this servant who did the minimum and buried it in the ground was met with punishment. You can read Matthew 25 later, but he's called a worthless servant and cast into outer darkness. Servile fear sees God as boss and doesn't, doesn't appreciate him or love him, but simply seeks to do the minimum and stay out of trouble. And I'd venture to say there are those of us in this room who, who see God that way. Our relationship with God is, well, I'm just going to kind of do the minimum because I'd kind of like to stay out of trouble with the man upstairs, but I don't really love him or, or have any sort of affection for him at all. I'm just sort of going to follow the rules. That's a servile fear of God. But rather than seeing God as boss... We're commanded to see God as dad, to see God as dad. That's a, a, a filial feel, a fear, a kind of fear of, of, of God as our heavenly father. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told us, teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount? He began his model prayer. You've heard it, right? Our father who art in heaven. And he's telling us to pray with reverence and all fit for a father in heaven. And the author of Hebrews does an incredible job describing this reality to us. In Hebrews 12, the author, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, reminds us that our stat of our status as sons and daughters of God. And he tells us that our status as children of God doesn't mean we're going to have a pain-free life. Hope someone's told you that today, but if not, I'm going to tell you your status as a Christian, as a son or daughter of God, does not mean a pain-free and easy life. In fact, it might mean exactly the opposite in many cases. We will suffer, and God will use this suffering as a means to train us and teach us something. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 to 10. Here's what we see. It says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplined us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. Let me say, some of us like me, haven't had earthly fathers, or maybe you had an earthly father who was terrible and abusive to you, you can have a hard time getting your head around this, and that's okay. But our Father in heaven is one who loves us and often disciplines us for our good. I think we can all get our head around how a momentary slap on the hand or swat on the bottom is better than allowing the child to touch the hot stove. That moment of pain was teaching them that this was not something that they should do. Discipline can be painful, but also incredibly beneficial. And I think often when we think about this, this, this analogy of, of God being father and us being children and, and him disciplining us through things in our life, 
We're, we often put ourselves in the wrong place in the analogy. Some of us put ourselves as the objective third party looking in on our suffering, as if, well, I, I have all the perspective on what could be coming, what God could be keeping me from, how God could be using this for something in the future that I would, that, that I would know about. Some, we, we often see ourselves that way, but we aren't that way. We don't have a full picture often of what God is doing. Second, we also, sometimes we see ourselves as the parents in the picture, as if we know better than God. And friends, let me tell you something. All of us kind of in our hearts can think that, but let me tell you, we know, we do not know better than God. We're rather the teenager getting mad at their dad because he won't let us go out to the late night party and drive his car to the said wild party. How unfair, how selfish, right? But discipline is there to grow us out of that. And it's this loving discipline that should produce a loving and a reverent fear. Hebrews 12 puts a great bow on this analogy. Look, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 to 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, for thus and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here he says, fearing God as Father begins with recognizing his gifts, that he's given us a kingdom, by seeking to please him with acceptable worship, and by offering reverence, obedience, and awe, not out of fear of getting in trouble, but by recognizing that God is an all-consuming fire, is worthy. That we're not to be like the man who saw his, his master as a hard and undeserving tyrant, but rather see God as a, loving, as a loving father who's due our glory. This is the fear that it should produce in us. And we should ask ourselves, do we see God as a, as a hard boss or as a gracious father? Because it will impact how you encounter all of God's word is how you see him when he delivers that word to us. And so with this distinction, we enter into Genesis chapter 20. And Genesis 20 is a call for us to fear God over man, to fear God supremely. And we start by considering Abraham's fear of man. Abraham's fear of man. Notice how Genesis 20 begins. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. Gerar, Abraham has come to a familiar place. He's come to a familiar place. Abraham has been living as a wanderer with his wife in what has slowly become a very small kingdom. He's living in tents. And though he's been promised this land he's living in, he hasn't come to possess it yet. He's visited the Negev a number of times. And he's in a place called Gerar. And that word literally means place of sojourning. So he's a sojourner who's come to the place of sojourning, a familiar place for Abraham. And not only is this a familiar place, but Abraham is going to tell a familiar lie. A familiar lie. Look what Abraham says here. 
And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This is the exact same tactic that Abraham used with Pharaoh back in chapter 12. And this might seem unusual to us, but Abraham was able to justify this on a number of grounds. One, we see Sarah had bought into it. Friends, sometimes we're willing to do a lot of crazy stuff because there's somebody else that's willing to go do it with us, right? We've all seen this in our life. And if you read over the text, you see Sarah was right on board going, he's my brother. We also learned that Abraham was technically not lying, right? Look at verse 12. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So Sarah was a half-sister, which, yes, to our 21st century mind is icky, right? Pretty common, though, in the ancient world, and that's okay. And so Abraham was likely thinking, technically, I'm not lying. Technically, there's a half-truth in what I'm saying here. But while he might not have been, while he might have only been telling a half-lie, a half-truth, he was telling a whole lie. And he was being deceitful. Consider the ninth commandment tells us, do not bear false witness. And this command isn't simply to not tell a lie, as it's often told, but it's also don't lead someone else to believe something false. So it's not just don't tell a lie, it's also don't let other people think something's the case when it's not. And so Abraham's goal was to have Abimelech believe something untrue, that Sarah wasn't his wife when she was. And notice, we see this seemed to be something that was ongoing for Abraham. It says he did this everywhere we would wander. This was plan A anywhere he went. And friends, while many of us may not lie about our wives being our sister, don't try that one. Please, guys, don't, don't do that, right? Many of us exaggerate all kinds of things. We might present ourselves one way when we're here on Sunday, but really live another way Monday through Saturday. We might, we might look over, maybe we're in school, look over at our neighbor's paper to see what they wrote, and we might be able to justify it by going, I'm not cheating, I'm just stretching my eyes. You've never done that, right? You've never been tempted to, to cheat off of a person next to you by doing the whole stretch thing, right? Or, or maybe we, in this day of COVID, maybe we claim we did an online assignment when we really didn't do it, but we wanted to hit the button and say we did. We are tempted to do exactly what Abraham did here, whether to save ourselves from trouble, get something we want, or maybe like Abraham, we act out of fear. From a familiar place to a familiar lie, all of this done with a familiar fear. A familiar fear. Why would Abraham do this? Look at verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham was afraid for his life, just like he was in Egypt. And instead of trusting the Lord to rescue him, as he had time and time again, he plotted in his heart to save 
himself. And this is the exact sort of thing that fear can do to you. Fear of man can cause you to forget all of God's past faithfulness. Fear of man led Abraham to try to bring about the promises of God by his own wisdom and planning. Abraham did this in Genesis 15 when he, wanted, when he said, God, take Eleazar to be my heir instead of trying to give me a son. Sarah and Abraham did this together when they plotted to try to have a son through Hagar. That would be the promised one. Abraham and Sarah are just like us. We are tempted time and time again to try to be the hero of our story, to save ourselves, and so often fear prompts this in us. And yet Abraham should have feared God above all rather than fearing Abimelech, trusted in the Lord, not fearing horses and chariots, sought the delight of God, avoiding the and rather than avoiding the controversy with his opponents, Abraham should have feared God and not man. Genesis 20 is not just a warning, giving us a picture here, don't be like Abraham who feared man, but it also gives us three reasons to fear God. You'll see this in your notes. Three reasons to fear God. First, we need to fear God because of his perception of the heart. We need to fear God because of his perception of the heart. Look at verse 3. This is sort of the meat of this passage. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. There's an incredible contrast here. So first, you see in verse 7, Abraham's called a prophet. This is the first time anyone's been called a prophet up to this point in the Bible. And yet we see that the Lord appeared to Abimelech, a pagan king, in a dream rather than Abraham, his prophet, God is appearing to Abimelech in this dream rather than to his prophet Abraham. And notice that in the dream, that in this dream, it's God who recognizes that Abimelech has integrity of heart and not Abraham. It's fascinating here. God could see something that Abraham tried to judge. Abraham thought that they didn't fear God, and yet it ends up being Abraham who didn't fear God. Abraham thought Abimelech and all of his kingdom doesn't fear God, and yet he didn't truly fear God. In fact, God could see into the heart, and he made his verdict clear. Let me tell you something. The idea that God can see into our hearts is taken far too carefree in our day. I hear it all the time. Someone says, well, God knows my hearts, all while living however they want. 
and according to whatever their heart desire. And let me tell you, God has made his verdict on the heart clear. Jeremiah 17, we saw this last week, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and test the mind to give to every man according to his way, according to the fruit of his deeds. God judges the heart. And if we should be honest, that should lead us to fear God a little bit, that he has seen every emotion you've ever had, every thought that's ever run through your mind. Imagine if we just put every thought, every emotion, anything you've ever seen or thought right up here on this screen for the whole church to see. You'd be a little worried, wouldn't you? And yet God sees it all the time. This should prompt fear of God, and as Jesus gives the same warning, Luke chapter 12, look at this. Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who, who can kill the body, and after that, do nothing more, but, but, warn you who, but I will warn you who to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We're told ultimately we shouldn't fear that, that our ultimate fear shouldn't be the government, for they can only kill us or tax us or do all sorts of things to us, right? The ultimate fear shouldn't be public opinion, for the worst thing they can do is cancel you, right? And your ultimate fear shouldn't even be what people close to you say about you, but rather your ultimate fear should be the fear of God, what God thinks, what God can do, are you following what he has said? Don't let your heart ultimately be your guide. Let God in his word be the light for your path. Because God is both a loving father and a just judge, and Abraham should have trusted that he would take care of the trial in front of him. Fear God because of his perception of the heart. Second. Genesis 20 tells us to fear God because of his power to intervene. So he's got this perception of the heart, but he's also got the power to intervene. Did you notice that in the dream, God stopped Abimelech from sinning? Look back at verse 6. Look at this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So God was going to save Abraham one way or another. Back in chapter 12, he sent plagues upon Egypt to wake them up. You know, how he, you know what he had to do to wake Abraham up? Or to, to wake Abimelech up? Put him to sleep. <laughs> All he had to do was let, was let Abimelech take a nap that night, <laughs> go to bed, lay himself down, and God could, could have done anything he wanted to rescue Abraham and to intervene, and he gives Abimelech this dream and rescues him. And notice how Abimelech responds to this dream. Verse 8, look at this. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. I think all of us would have done the same thing. He got up, he awakes early in the morning, he called all of his servants, and he told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Abimelech wastes no time. He gets up early, he calls this big royal staff meeting, and he gets to work. And ironically, Abraham was afraid of them, and yet look, they're now the ones who are afraid. As they should be, God has just appeared to him in a dream. I'm sure y'all have had some wild dreams, right? 
But, but God appearing and going, hey, the, that woman you just took, she, she's another man's wife. If you don't give her up, your, your nation's done. I don't think any of us have quite had dreams along those lines. Look what happens in verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom such a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Look at this. Abimelech, the pagan king, the one who who Abraham said they don't fear God, is now taking Abraham, the prophet, to task. He's going, why would you lead us to sin like this? Why have you done something that ought not to be done? Abraham should have been viewing his sin this way, and yet he doesn't. He tried to justify himself by getting technical. He tried to go, well, it's not really a sin because of this technicality. Friends, let me say, that's so much like many of us, isn't it? Trying to base our lives on a technicality. Abraham knew his intent. And he knew what would happen. If you remember, Abraham was told that he was going to be a blessing to the nations. But right now, he was really being a curse to the nations, wasn't he? In fact, this whole mess had impacted more than just Abimelech, and more than just Abraham, and more than just Sarah. Think about it. Abraham was promised that Sarah was going to have a child, and he just sold her to this king. (laughs) She, and she went right along with it. She really should have, should have probably protested to this. Look what happens. There was far more impact than this. Look at 17 and 18. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife and female servants so that they, could, so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This one sin had impacted the whole nation. And that also tells us Sarah was with Abimelech for a long time because it must have taken a little while for them to know that all of these wombs had been closed. Yet God intervened to save her and rescue her. Fear God because of his power to intervene. And finally, we should fear God because of his purpose to bless. His purpose to bless. To bless. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, some irony there, right? A thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you are vindicated. This may seem odd, but follow with me here. Abraham blew it and was a curse to this nation. Now he's repented, and Sarah's back, and the nation is blessing him. This pagan nation is now blessing him with this stuff. This is the promise of Genesis 12, 3 on full display. Look at this. God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When Sarah was taken, the nation was cursed. 
and now returned, they blessed him and were blessed themselves. The Lord Abraham was promised. He now has a place to dwell there. Abimelech says, dwell where you want. He's now able to dwell at least in the land that had been promised to him. And he was also promised a child. And his wife, if you see the emphasis of the text, was that Abimelech didn't even get a chance to touch her or for her to become pregnant at all. Consider how threatened the whole promise was by him giving his wife away here. And God protected her. Any child that was going to come was going to be Abraham's and not someone else's. And God's purpose was to bless Abraham and to bless the world through him. And this should prompt godly fear because earthly, worldly bosses don't generally bless people who blow it. But gracious fathers do. Gracious fathers do. And in fact, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise would come several thousand years later in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ of of Nazareth. And through Jesus, God would bring the greatest blessing to the most undeserving. Through Jesus, sinful humanity would be reconciled into a right relationship with him and the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul uses Abraham as a picture of this blessing. Look at Romans 4. Look at Romans chapter 4. And look what he says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the faith? So he say, what about, how was Abraham set right with God? And then he says, For if Abraham had been justified or set right by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he quotes there from Genesis 15, 6, which happened five chapters earlier and many decades before, and we see that Abraham was counted righteous, restored in right relationship with God by faith and not by works. Then look... Look at this, Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he says, in other words, if you view God as a boss, you'll view your salvation like a paycheck. And how many people out there have viewed their salvation at one point like, well, I just do these good things. God will write me an eternal life check that I can cash at the bank. If I just do these right works and check off the list, I can keep the boss happy with me, and then maybe I can enter into, in, into my eternal life. But right relationship with God isn't like a paycheck. Right relationship with God is something that comes far more scandalously. Look what Romans 4, 5 says. It's up there on the screen. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You must come to God, not seeing him as a boss to which you must earn a paycheck from, but as a dad who will embrace the ungodly and the broken and the sinful. Abraham is a fine example of that. In fact, I think that Romans 4, 4 to 5 is really a commentary on Abraham's whole life. Ungodly, he blew it in Egypt. He blew it with Hagar. He blew it again with Abimelech. And yet God, as a good father, was able to justify him, restore their broken relationship, and forgive his sins. See it not based on Abraham's good works, 
but solely based on faith. That's incredible to think about. If there were ever an example of God justifying the sinful, the ungodly, the undeserving, Abraham is it. And if there were ever hope for you who feel too broken, too sinful, or too far gone, it is the truth that if God could reconcile Abraham to himself, he can do the same for you. And that God justifies the ungodly through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the perfect king who, unlike Abimelech, represents his people sinlessly. Abraham, or Jesus, is also the perfect prophet and priest who stands before God on our behalf with confidence. And he came and died on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose again from the dead in order that the ungodly might be justified, that Abraham and people just like him might be set right with God, that we might not see God as a boss or as a cruel master, but find him to be a kind father. Consider this, what boss would give his son to save? What kind of boss would ever sacrifice their only son Especially for employees that blow it time and time and time and time and time again. Oh, what fear this should prompt in us. Reverence and awe due to a gracious and kind Heavenly Father. Paul, after listing a string of glorious promises, made this conclusion. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Look at this. Since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See that? Do the promises of God prompt fear in you? Does the kindness of God lead you to repentance? Does the gospel of Jesus really strike you as good news? Or is it simply a get-out-of-hell-free card? Does it bring us to God as Father and Jesus as his Savior, how will we respond to this? Will we continue to live by our own works, trying to, trying to please God, going, I can do this on my own. I don't need grace. I don't need help. But will we come to him, just as the prodigal son who turned and ran home, and what did the father do? He met him on the road. He met him when he, he, he wasn't even back all the way up the driveway yet. And the, and the father met him on the way. How do you walk before God? Are you just looking for a paycheck or are you trusting his promises? Genesis 20 lays before us this question. Whom do we ultimately fear? Do we fear God as boss or fear him as father? And, and do we hold anything above him? The opinions of our culture... The, the governmental powers around us? Or do we fear him as the only one who has eternally loved us, been indescribably gracious to us, and is absolutely worthy of our praise, our fear, and our life? Do we see him as our loving, gracious Father in heaven? I would invite you, if you have been living your life just trying to please God by your own works. Maybe you're here this morning because you're like, well, if I just come and, and sit and listen to this sermon and maybe I, maybe I write a check and give a little money, God will be happy with me. I would say, no, there's a better way, not with God as your boss, because let me tell you, if we're trying to rely on our own works, there is no hope for us. 
but rather we can find him to be a loving, gracious Father who will meet you right where you are. You can call on him in these next moments by prayer and talk with me or someone here today who would love to talk to you more about knowing God as Father through Jesus, his Son. But I think it's also a question we need to ask ourselves as believers because we can be just like Abraham. Abraham knew God. He'd encountered God in a saving way, and yet he still began to wander. He still began to think wrongly about God, and that impacted how he lived his life. Friends, we can today repent and turn back and find God's grace to be good and ready to receive us if we will come. So in these next moments, as we worship and sing, may we praise God as our Father. May we let go of our sin and even our wrong views of Him and turn to Him and find Him to be gracious and ready to receive us. Let's pray together. Father God, you are good. Thank you for your kindness, not just to Abraham, but your kindness to us. Abraham blew it time and time and time again. Trying, he, he thought he knew so much better than God did. And so many of us live our lives thinking we know better than, than you and your word do. Lord, show us that just as the prodigal son sought his own way and ended up in, in the pig pen, Lord, show us that sin is that pig pen. And that living our own way or trying to earn God's favor could, could never, ever bring us home to the Father. But rather, may we turn now and by faith head home, walk back home, and find God ready to receive us on the way. Right now I pray if there's any here within the sound of my voice who have never encountered God as Father, that they would meet you right here in this moment by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. And I also pray that you would just remind all of us as believers in this season that you have just incredibly loved us and that that should prompt a proper fear of you a love for you, a reverence for you, not as people trying to just earn your favor, but as people who have it and have been lavished with it freely and maybe live out of that grace today for your glory. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and respond to this.
blessing of God, empowered by the Spirit, and sent into this world with a message of hope, a message of grace, and we're sent out with this benediction, this blessing from God's Word. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.